Well, good evening, Maranatha family. Are you guys excited to be in the house of the Lord tonight? I am too. We have a very special guest with us this evening. Miss Anne Graham Lotz has traveled all the way from North Carolina to share God's word with us tonight. I couldn't be more excited. And um, I did want to mention that next Wednesday, I want you to come back because we will be hosting our monthly worship night. We usually take the first Wednesday to do uh, set aside for worship night. Well, we're going to do it next Wednesday. So come back next Wednesday. And I'm going to invite to the stage and Graham Lotz. But before I do, um, I just wanted to preface what you're going to hear tonight. Um, we had an opportunity to talk on the phone the other day, and I was just spending some time with her and her daughters, Rachel, Ruth, and Morrow in my office. And it's an honor to have all three of you ladies with us tonight. Um, but we were talking about what she's going to be sharing. And the, the theme that God has given her to share on is, is this idea of a legacy of faith generational faith, handing the faith down. And, and that really is what this whole life is all about. We've been given a torch and we carry it with us through our lives. And at the end of our lives, we pass that torch with the flame still burning white hot and we hand it to the next generation and we tell them to go. And this is the way that it's been from the very beginning. In fact, I'm not going to preach, I promise, but I do want to read one scripture. This is Paul the Apostle and he says... Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And so God has given to us this incredible legacy of faith. And there are, there are those people that you look at and you want to pattern your life after because they run the race the right way. They carry with them the flame of the gospel and they steward that well and they spread the flame and and I just want to say on behalf of all of us that you are one of those shining lights you are one of those examples and we we bless you and honor you and many of you know we have a special relationship with with her and her family um, as she has been grafted into this fellowship and and it was years ago we didn't even get to talk about this but um that she, she put herself as a member of this church. In fact, I think we have a picture of her and my dad, and she made my dad her pastor, Pastor Ray Bentley. There they are together. And as we think about what it means to, to leave a legacy, you know, you start out your, your life as a professional, you want to build a life, but then you start to think about where is this all going, and you start to think about how do I leave a legacy? And we have a rich heritage here, Maranatha, do we not? Amen. And we have a rich legacy and it's been stewarded well and, and it's been handed off to me and this next generation and we're going to run hard and we're going to run fast. And, and the, the Graham family has done the same thing. We have a picture of Anne uh, as she's coming up and hugging her dad. I wanted to show you this as well. And, and uh, this is her dad, Billy Graham. You've heard of him. And when you're a ministry kid, you're in the, uh, your dad's in the ministry, you have to share him with her, especially with the world. And, um, and so he would go on these long preaching trips, and this is them being gathered together. But you can, you can see that legacy as it's passed, 
passed from generation to generation and now from Anne to her daughters, Rachel, Ruth, and Morrow. And Rachel, Ruth, and Anne have been working on this book. It's available for you tonight. And after she speaks, it will be, they'll be available to sign books in the back. And she's looking forward to meeting you there. And I will say we were only able to pick up a limited supply. So, um, try to be first, or you can pick it up on Amazon and uh, wherever books are sold. But um, will you please give a big, hearty, warm Maranatha welcome to our special guest speaker, Miss Ann Graham Lotz. Thank you so much. I am so blessed to be here, and I will tell you, I've um, been sort of surprised by your weather. <laughs> when we left home, it was about 80 degrees. <laughs> Everything's in bloom. We're a month ahead of schedule, and then I come here, and it's like uh, hurricane season. So, but I, I, and I also will tell you, I have. Um, very bad chest cold, so my voice is gravelly, and I have ear infections, so I can't hear much in either ear, so if you speak to me and I just sort of smile blandly, you know it's because I'm not understanding. <laughs> but I, I feel it's such a privilege to be here, um, uh, to see you face to face, and I'm with you every Sunday morning at 8.30 online, and, um, and to be in this place and to um, be in person is just a high privilege, and to be in this place, for Daniel to give me the privilege to share God's word with you, um, it just means more than I can say. So thank you, each one. Thank you for being you, and I love the legacy that is represented in this church, from Ray Bentley and now to Daniel and, um, and those that will come after. So we want to, um, yeah, amen. We want to be faithful stewards, don't we? So um, before we have the message, pray with me. So Lord Jesus, we come before you now, and we thank you that you're the one from whom all blessings flow. And so what I'm asking tonight is that you pour out your blessings on us, and we want to receive everything you have to give us. And I ask, please, Lord, that you give me the strength, you give me the voice, you give me the recall, and that you take the words, clothe them in the power of your Holy Spirit, and put them in the hearts of those who are here. We want to be found faithful when we see you face to face. So we ask your blessing now on your word as it goes forth, and we pray this, please, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You know, people from time to time ask me, and how is it that um, your grandparents, your parents, you, your children, you know, have put your faith in Jesus? And I want to tell you that it's not um, in the water we drink. <laughs> it's not in, you know, it, it's uh, intentional. And we have to be very intentional as parents, grandparents, friends, about passing on truth that leads to faith in Jesus. And if we don't, then it could die out in a generation. So I'm reminded of um, actually one of my favorite sporting events. I'm not an athlete. My husband and my children, my grandchildren, all great athletes, but I enjoy watching sports. And one of the events that I enjoy watching is 
the four by 100 meter relay race. And usually it's in the Summer Olympics that you get so caught up in it. But if you're familiar with that race, there are four, uh, four runners for each team. There can be multiple teams. And the, the four runners are staggered along the track. And the first runner is gripping a baton. And when he, uh, he's at the starting blocks, and so the teams are all lined up with the first runner of each team at the starting blocks, gripping the baton. When the gun goes off, then the runner just sprints as fast as he can, and he goes around the track until he comes to the second runner. The second runner is already in motion. He reaches back. The first runner passes him the baton. He grabs the baton. He goes on. He comes to the third runner. The third runner is already in motion, and he passes the baton, uh, reaches back. The second runner passes it to the third runner, and so on until the race is finished. And the race is won not only by the team that runs the fastest, but by the team that passes that baton the smoothest. Because if you bobble it, you lose precious seconds. And if you drop it, you're disqualified. So you and I are in a race called life. And you and I have been given the baton. And I'm going to, the baton, I believe, is the truth that leads to faith in Jesus. But to simplify things or to bring the focus right down, I'm going to describe it as the gospel. So we're gripping that, we, we receive it for ourselves, and we grip the gospel ourselves, and then it's up to us to pass it to the next generation. And I want to tell you something. I look at the next generation. I don't know what you call them, Generation Z, or, you know, I don't know what all their labels are, but... I believe we've been bobbling the baton, maybe even dropping it altogether. And we're in serious trouble. So I want us to just examine what it means to grip the baton and pass it to the next generation. How do we do that effectively? So I want to go back to the beginning, back to Genesis chapter 2. The message is based on Genesis chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, you can open to Genesis 5 on your device, your hard copy. But I want to go back to the beginning in chapter 2 when God created Adam and Eve. And when he created them, uh, they lived with him in the Garden of Eden, and they enjoyed his presence. They had fellowship with him. And can you imagine for a moment what it would be like to be Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning to see God's face and see the way his eyes would light up when they would come into his presence, to hear God's voice, to feel his touch, to work with him in the garden and receive his counsel and his wisdom and his guidance. And it was paradise. It was heaven on earth. But Adam and Eve thought they could do better. I mean, it's just ludicrous that they would think there'd be something better than living in paradise with God. But you know the story. So they sinned. They rebelled against him. They disobeyed what he said. And so they lost paradise. They were cast out of his presence. But before he cast them out of his presence, he killed an animal, and he clothed, their, they clothed them in the skin of the, the animal. So if you can just understand, blood had to be shed before they could be covered in their sin and their shame. And right there, that baton of the gospel was passed from God to Adam and Eve. It was relayed face to face, okay? So it was, it's a very subtle Old Testament picture of the gospel. But we know that that's what it was. He must have taught them because of what happened with their children. So in the beginning, just 
if you can get it in your mind, in the beginning, the gospel was passed from God himself to Adam and Eve face to face. From then on, it was relayed faith to faith. Okay? So Adam and Eve had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And Cain was the firstborn, and you can tell that they had been taught how to approach God, how to be reconciled to him, how to come back into his presence. It was through a blood sacrifice. But Cain decided, you know, he, he was a farmer, and he grew crops and fruits, and so he was going to give God the very best of what he had, but it wasn't what God required. But Cain was like in God's face, you know, God, I'm going to give you the best, I'm going to come to you on my terms, and then you owe me just access to your presence. You know somebody like Cain? Somebody who's just arrogant, proud, and they think there are more ways to God than just one, and that they can come to him with all their good works, they just do more good works than bad works, if they give a lot of money, if they, you know, talk right or pray right or go to the right church or they baptize or, you know, all, God will owe them heaven, owe them a right relationship with him. It doesn't work that way. So God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. So we come to Abel, the second born of Adam and Eve. And Abel, you know, I think both Cain and Abel, they must have been in the home and heard from Adam and Eve what it was like to live in God's presence. And to see the softness on their face and the love in their eyes as they talked about living with God and walking with God and knowing God and how wonderful that personal relationship was with God. And so Abel wanted that for himself. He reached out and he grasped that baton that was passed to him by his mother and his father. And then he approached God with a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. But I want to stop there for a moment and just ask you to reflect, who passed the gospel to you? Was it Ray Bentley? Somebody, maybe Daniel? Somebody in your family? Did you learn that at home? At home, I would, through my mother and my father, um, I could see their love for Jesus. I could see the way they live for Jesus, and it made me want to know him, made me want to reach out and take that baton for myself. And so when I was a little girl, I was seven, eight, or nine years of age. I can't remember the exact year, but I remember it was a good Friday, and I'd watched a picture about Jesus on television, and when it came to the scene of the cross, I knew that Jesus had died for me. So I got down on my knees beside my bed, and I told God I was so sorry for all the wrong things I'd done, and I was sorry for my sin, and I wanted the death of Jesus to be worthwhile if it was just for me. And so I asked him to forgive me of my sin and to come into my heart and let me live for him. And I believe at that moment, I grasped the gospel for myself. And I was born again into God's family because listen to me, God doesn't have any grandchildren. And just because I'm Billy Graham's daughter doesn't make me a child of God. I had to claim him for myself. When did you do that? Who passed that baton to you? Where did you hear the gospel? So once I've received the gospel and uh, my children have heard me share that many, many times, but I want to tell you why it's important. <clears throat> because I'll go back to my husband. My husband, eight years ago, just suddenly, horrifically, went to see Jesus. And as much of a nightmare as it was, you know what my comfort was? 
He had told us many, many times, as well as the guys that he led, as well as the Sunday school classes, when he was a little boy, five years of age, he went to vacation Bible school, he came back, the teacher would give him a verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, and my husband gave his heart to Jesus. So I knew, even though he had gone suddenly to be with Jesus, I would see him again. So last year, on January 4, when I got a call from Mike McIntosh, and he said, Ann, you need to call Vicki, and I said, why? And then he told me, and like you, I was in shock. I could not quite grasp what he had said. But do you know what my comfort was and is? The first time I met Ray, he said, Ann, I want to tell you something. He said, I was 11 years old, and I went to see a Billy Graham movie, The Restless Ones. And when they gave the invitation at the end, he said, I walked down the aisle and I gave my heart to Christ. The only one in the theater who responded. So you know the people that planned that event thought it had been a total failure. <laughs> but look at you. You're here. You know? And our comfort, our comfort is in knowing that we're going to see Ray again. You know, this life is not all there is. Amen. So let me challenge you. When have you told your children? When have you told your grandchildren? When have you told your friends, your coworkers, about when you took the gospel for yourself? When you put your faith in Jesus? When you went to the cross and confessed your sin and told God you were sorry and asked him to forgive you and come into your heart and... Please, you can be born again. You can be saved don't be silent. Tell your family, because you never know when your life is going to be required. And just like that, you're gone. But you want to give your family, your loved ones, your friends, the comfort of knowing where you are. So we know exactly where Ray is. We know exactly where my husband is. We know one day we're going to be reunited with them. And that's a comfort for us in the meantime. So... Abel sacrificed um, a blood sacrifice. So he came to God the way God required. And his brother Cain was enraged, bitter, angry. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but had rejected Cain's sacrifice. So Cain called his brother out into the field, and he killed him. And Hebrews 11.4 says, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. So what does, Cain, what does Abel's death still say? How is he still speaking? And if you are familiar with Schofield, that was my first Bible, it was a Schofield Bible. In fact, Vicki just showed me Ray's Bible when they got married to Schofield Bible, and he had timed creation about 6,000 years ago. I don't know if that's right or not. But if Abel lived 6,000 years ago, for 6,000 years, his death has been speaking. And what is it saying? And I think Abel is telling you and me 6,000 years later that the gospel is worth living for, and the gospel is worth dying for, and if you suffer persecution, if you suffer rejection by your family, then so be it. But it's the gospel. It's Jesus who is preeminent. So Abel 
gave his life for the gospel. Right there at the very beginning of Genesis, he's recorded in Hebrews 11. That's the hall of fame in the Bible because he didn't back down. He didn't compromise. He sacrificed right in front of his brother. God accepted him and Cain killed him. So it was a powerful witness. So the first characteristic of a Jesus follower who's going to be effective in passing that gospel to the next generation is that you bear witness to the gospel. And you have a testimony yourself that you've been to the cross, you've confessed your sin, told God you're sorry, asked him to forgive you, cleanse you with the blood of Jesus, receive the eternal life he gives you, open up your heart, invite Jesus to come in in the person of the Holy Spirit, surrender your life to him, from this day forward, you live for him until one day you walk into heaven. That's the gospel. Can I just make it even clearer if I can? What is the gospel? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let me flip that around. For God so loves you that if you put your faith, if you don't put your faith in Jesus, you will perish. You'll go to hell. But if you receive him by faith, you're forgiven. You receive eternal life. There's no other name, Acts 4.12 says, given under heaven among men whereby you can be saved, just the name Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. John 1.12, as many as receive him by faith, you believe on his name, you receive him, you become a child of God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that was passed from God face to face to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve related faith to faith to Abel. And Abel, through his powerful witness, we, and, and if you're single here, if you're a single person here, Abel was single as far as we know. So the Bible doesn't record that he got married, that he had children before he was murdered. But his witness was so powerful, it reverberated throughout the generations. And his little brother, Seth, was born after he was murdered. But Seth also wanted to grasp that baton. He received the gospel. And we know that because he's in the genealogy of it's Adam and then Seth and goes on down the line. Cain's genealogy in chapter 4 doesn't start with Adam, and God discards it. He, he, Cain, can I tell you, built a incredible civilization that the Wall Street Journal, I think that's who it was, said was, could be the golden lost age of Atlantis. So his, Cain's descendants were builders, architects, musicians, um, stone crafters, artists. They were incredible, very powerful, but totally godless without God. In fact, it was Cain's civilization that we come to in chapter 6 that was so wicked and evil that God destroyed them through the flood. So you may know a Cain, somebody who's arrogant, somebody who thinks they don't need God, and they build a tremendous business, a tremendous life. They're wealthy, they're powerful, and, but they're without God. So God discards them. The, the genealogy is meaningless in a sense. He doesn't record much of Cain's civilization at all. He wipes them out. But... Abel had that impact on Seth, and Seth 
receive the baton for himself, the, receive the gospel for himself. And then he passed it to his son. <clears throat> so chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And this is through worship. His son Enosh is the one who worships. So Abel was a witness. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. Can I just stop for a minute? <laughs> I'm just going to get on a little rabbit trail, okay? If there's somebody listening, somebody in your family, somebody here who struggles with gender identity, I want to tell you something. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. But listen to me. He doesn't make mistakes. And he created you either male or female. So you are the gender you were born with. And if you give your life to God through faith in Jesus, he has a plan and purpose for you. You don't have to live your life in confusion. So... He created them male and female, and he blessed them. And verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. So not to be confused with Enoch. So I don't know where they get these names from. <laughs> they can be tongue twisters. But this is Enosh. And if you go back up to chapter 4, verse 26, you learn something about him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So... Enosh, I'm assuming by his own example, did he start a prayer meeting? Was this the first corporate time of worship? And I think it probably implies prayer. But they called on the name of the Lord. And I don't think that was just reciting his names. I think Enosh and those who were calling on the name of the Lord with him, they wanted to know God. It wasn't enough just to bear witness to the gospel. It wasn't enough just to be saved. They wanted to know God. They wanted to grow in that knowledge. And God, his character is represented by his names. So when do you make the time to get to know God in worship? And I, I feel like I'm interrupting your worship tonight, actually, if this is your worship night. But we can worship him in many different ways, can't we? And Enosh worshiped, and other people worshiped because he worshiped. So it was contagious. And when uh, four years ago, four and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, went through surgery, went through chemotherapy that went much too long, <laughs> I think you can't bear it, and then a month of daily radi radiation. And my two daughters who are here, Mar and Rachel Ruth, they went with me to every chemo appoint appointment, and Mar went to every radiation appointment. Rachel Ruth made as many as she could, but, but the, it, the hospital was about 30 minutes away. <clears throat> and... I started it out as a game, just to pass the time, try to distract myself as we were going to the hospital. Then it became much more than that. But, but I would go down the alphabet and we'd go around in the car and just give as many names for Jesus as we could for each letter of the alphabet. And then it became a more serious exercise to me. So as I went through the names, I began thinking about what they would mean. And he's the alpha. He's the beginning of everything, the author of our salvation. He's the beloved of the Father, the bread of life that 
gives us sustenance. We can't live without. He's Christ, the Messiah, the creator of this body that's wearing out. The defender of the weak, the deliverer. He's Emmanuel. He's the friend of sinners. He's God. He's the Holy One, high and lofty. He's the I Am. He's Jesus, Jehovah. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the light of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the Master. He's the Nazarene. He's the Omega. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Quickener. Quickens you into life. He's the Redeemer. He's the Savior, our Shepherd. He's the Truth. And I couldn't think of one for you, so I just used an adjective. He's undefiled. <laughs> He's the Victor. He's where am I? U, V, W. He's the wisdom of God. X, Y, Z, I put it together. He's exalted. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for you and me. So I can tell you, there's sometimes when I go to bed at night, you know, yes, just thank you, Jesus. Thank you. When I go to bed at night and I have a hard time going to sleep, or I wake up in the night and I'm worried about something, or I have an insecurity, I just go over his names. So make up your own alphabetized list of his names. Learn it. And then think about what each one means. Call on the name of the Lord. And that was in the evening devotions. I don't know if you read the Daily Light, but Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. And we put the banner of his names over us, and underneath we feel safe, and we have security, and we have peace. So Enosh because he worshiped God, calling on the name of the Lord. Other people did too. Who is worshiping God? Who is praising him? Who is calling on his name because you do? Starts in the home, doesn't it? And if you didn't come from a heritage like that, start one. And... He chose to grasp that baton for himself and bore witness and worshiped, and it was powerful. You remember in Second Chronicles, one of my favorite passages, chapter 20, when Jehoshaphat was surrounded by the enemy, and I think there were the Amalekites, and I um, can't remember if there's another one, maybe. Uh, Amalekites, and uh, one of the Midianites, but anyway, so like termites, aren't they? All those little <laughs> ites in the Old Testament. But anyway, there were many more than he could handle. So he said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then before they went to battle, he sent the choir in ahead of his army. Can you imagine anything that seems so foolish from a military standpoint? But they sent the choir in to praise God, and then the army followed, and they defeated the enemy. There is power in praise. And there is power in praise when it's individual, but also when it's corporate. When you put your eyes and you put your focus on who God is, who Jesus is. And I think other people see the way you're focused. And they begin to praise him also. So I don't know why Enish decided to grasp that baton for himself. Maybe he just watched his uncle Cain. You know, miserable, bitter, angry, wandering from place to place, never had peace, maybe had a big, powerful civilization, a lot of money, a lot of, you know, whatever. But no peace, no joy, no happiness. And he remembered his stories that he'd heard of his uncle Abel, his father Seth, 
told him, and he received the baton for himself. So we know that because he's in this genealogy. So he learned worship, I'm assuming, in the home, and then it spread out because it's contagious. When you worship the Lord like that, it becomes contagious. And another passage of scripture that I, I just love, Revelation chapter 4, when God is seated on the throne, the Lamb of God seated on the throne, and the throne is surrounded by the four cherubim and seraphim, and surrounding them are the 24 kings and elders, and surrounding them are millions and millions of angels, and the living creatures never stop worshiping the Lord. And when they worship the Lord in Revelation chapter 4, it said the 24 elders and the millions of angels and every creature in heaven and on earth worship the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And pretty soon the entire universe is just roaring in acclamation of the Lamb, rocking in praise of Jesus because worship like that is contagious. And I wonder if it's at that moment that every knee bows and every tongue confesses whether they want to or not because you know something. You can reject Jesus as your Savior, but you have no right to reject kneeling before him as Lord because every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and the whole universe, every, everything on the earth, under the earth, over the earth, around the earth is praising Jesus. Because praise is contagious. So let me point out something interesting. <clears throat> I'll read it first. First Peter 1, verses 7 and 8 says, You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. One reason God allows bad things to happen to people he loves is so that people see that when that bad thing happens, you're still praising him, you still love him, you're still filled with joy, you still have peace. I know when I was diagnosed with cancer, that you know, after I got over the initial whatever, then I was so convinced that God had allowed this to come into my life so that I could be a witness and bear testimony to the fact that bad things happen to people God loves. I knew God loved me. But I think some people, they're diagnosed with cancer, they go through a disease, they go through divorce, they face death, and they think God's not pleased with them. They think they've done something wrong, that, that he's punishing them. And that's not true. God can love, look at Jesus. God loved Jesus. He said that he leaned out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son again and again. And he allowed him to go to the cross and suffer torture, die because of the glory to come. And God has a bigger purpose than just our immediate comfort, doesn't he? And our immediate well-being and prosperity. So you can have all kinds of grief. And can I just also parenthetical about you because last January when Ray suddenly went to heaven and to see the way you have stayed together, you've stayed focused, you've maintained your worship and your joy and I, even online I see Jesus in you and 
the Sunday after Ray went to heaven, I was watching online and I saw Vicki stand up in this pulpit and give testimony to the way the Lord had been faithful and seen her through. Amen. That is worship. And to see Daniel step into this pulpit and embrace the responsibility, you know? So you can go through all kinds of grief and trials, Peter says, but they have a purpose, and it's to reveal Jesus through your praise. Several years ago, I was in London, England. I went to the Tower of London. I don't know if you've been there. It's where they keep the crown jewels. And when I was there, they put you on a moving sidewalk, so you can't stop in front of the glass. You have to keep moving. You can go around as many times as you want, but you pass the glass, you know, they're in a glass case, but the crown jewels are spectacular. The thing that makes them even, if they could be more spectacular, they're laid out on black velvet because the contrast between the jewel and the black velvet makes the jewel even, uh, all of the facets just glisten and it's, they're just, uh, almost can't believe they're real. So last January 4, God allowed the black velvet to come into the church. And what I've seen and other people have seen is the glory of God revealed in you, and the glory of God revealed in Vicky, and the glory of God revealed in Daniel. And when we get to heaven, you know something? We're going to say, it was worth it. It was worth it. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all wisdom and power and glory. Amen. So can I just ask you, what is the black velvet in your life? Is it the diagnosis of a disease? Death of a loved one other than Ray? A divorce? Some disaster? Don't get caught up in the black velvet. That's just the backdrop. It's your platform to let other people see Jesus in you. So Enosh worshipped, and because he did, other people worshipped also. So Enosh passed that gospel, Baton, to Canaan. Canaan passed it to Mahalalel. Mahalalel to Jared, and Jared to Enoch. So this is the third one. So we have Abel's witness, we have Enosh worship, and then we have Enoch who walked with God. Verses 21 and 22 of Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. That's a long time. <laughs> day after day after day. One day after another. And he began walking with God. Did you notice that? When his son was born. So I can imagine Enoch holding his little baby. And who would name a baby Methuselah? But anyway, <laughs> holding little baby Methuselah and seeing the little lashes on his chubby cheeks and the little rosebud mouth and his little fingers gripping Enoch's hand so tightly. And, and I wonder if Enoch was just overcome. This is a miracle. This is incredible. How am I going to raise a godly son in Cain's civilization? How am I going to raise him so that he takes that baton of the gospel for himself? when everybody in the culture is just going to hell. And that's when he began to walk with God. 
so what does it mean to walk with God? You know, walking is my exercise of choice. It's a stress reliever, and I love it, and, and I enjoy it more if I have somebody to walk with. So I can walk with one of my daughters. I can walk with a friend. When I walk with a friend, we have two rules, or we don't walk together. And our two rules are this. We have to walk at the same pace, and we have to walk in the same direction, or we don't walk together, okay? So walking with God is the same. So you walk at his pace, which is step-by-step obedience to his word. And let me ask you something. How can you walk at his pace if you're not reading your Bible every day? So you read your Bible every day that you might know what he says, that you might apply it to your life, that you might live it out, and you walk at his pace, step by step by step, and you walk in his direction. You don't go off in your own direction. You don't insist that he go with you. You're walking with him in his direction. That means the surrender of your will to him. Day by day, step by step, for 300 years, When did you start walking with God? When did you start reading your Bible every day? When did you start praying every day? When did you start applying what you read to your life so that you live it out? Enoch was steadfast. He just kept right on walking, and the New Testament tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. We know he had children, sons and daughters. I expect he had to have a job so that he could support his family. But he still made the time to walk with God. So what's your excuse for not walking with him? You say you're too busy? You're too tired? Are you limping in your walk? You know, one day you read your Bible, one day you don't. One day you pray, one day you don't. I've been there, done that. It doesn't work. (laughs) So, has something overwhelmed you? Maybe God has allowed you to be faced with an incredible responsibility or something that's bigger than you are. And you need, I think that's why he lets us have those situations because then we know we need him and we turn to him and we start walking, don't we? So, Enoch started walking and... In verse 24, it says he walked with God for 300 years, then he was no more because God took him away. He just kept walking for 300 years, and he just, God's presence became more real to him than anything else, and he walked right into presence, the presence of God, right into heaven, where he is today. So, start walking. (laughs) Step-by-step obedience to God's word, surrendering your will to him. And it's important that you walk with God because it's while you're walking with him that you get your assignment. And Noah is the last man on the list. And Noah not only was a witness, he not only worshiped, he not only walked with God, but he worked for God. Chapter 6 of Genesis, verses 8 and 9. Noah found favor. Excuse me, I need to go back to pass the baton. From Methuselah to Lamech to Noah, okay? And then Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. So he was right with God, blameless among the people of his time, right with his neighbors, and he walked with God. Tenth man on the list. He could easily have said, oh my goodness, God, (laughs) 
you know who my father was. Lamech, and he was a hard worker, and you know who my great-grandfather was. Enoch, and he walked with you. He walked right into heaven, and you know, I know you'll accept me because of who my family is. Or he could have said, oh my goodness, I can never work like my father, and I can never walk like Enoch and just give it all up. But he wasn't proud of his family heritage. He wasn't overwhelmed by it. He just started to walk with God himself. So I remember, I don't know what triggered it, but I was 16 years of age, and it occurred to me that when I stood before God, I would give an account for the way I lived my life. Up until then, I thought I was more like, I guess I was proud. I thought, well, God would accept me because of what my family had done. And then it occurred to me when I stood before God, I would stand before him by myself. I wouldn't be credited with who my father or mother was, who my grandparents were. I would be examined for myself, and I hadn't done anything. So I knelt down in that same room where I had received Jesus as Savior, and I knelt down on the floor, and I told God I wanted my life to count for something. And I surrendered my life to him for service. I won't go into my testimony, but he took that commitment seriously. I thought he hadn't heard me for a few years, <laughs> but I look back on my life, and he took that commitment very seriously. It's given me a lot of work to do. But I'll tell you something. The way I find out what my assignments are, I walk with him. So every day I read my Bible. You know, I've been so, I've limped so long in my Christian life, so I'm just going to tell you that. But I've quit years ago because it doesn't work. And right now, I'm at the point I wouldn't dare start my day without Bible reading and prayer. Because I want to know, you know, prayer is not just praying, gimme, gimme, gimme. Prayer is coming alongside God to find out what's on his heart and what's on his mind. So that God can impart to us his burdens, his desires. And as Noah walked with God, He was walking with him, and while he was walking with God, God said, Noah, and this is my paraphrase, I am fed up with these people. (laughs) I can't take their wickedness, their evil all the time, so I'm going to destroy everyone I created, everything that has breath. I'm sick of it. I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. So Noah learned that judgment was on the mind of God. And I don't walk with God as much as I should, not as closely as Enoch and steadfastly and, and like Noah, but I walk with God. And I can tell you, I read the headlines today, and I know judgment is on the mind of God. But aren't we grateful that Noah kept walking? Because as he kept walking, God said, So Noah, build me an ark because salvation from judgment was also on the mind of God. And Noah did everything exactly the way God told him. That was his assignment. That was his job. His job was to offer salvation, the gospel, can I put it that way, to his generation. So what's your assignment? What's the work that God has for you to do? You know what it is. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God has preordained works for you to do. 
And it may not be a big job like, you know, preaching in a pulpit. My mother had a sign over the kitchen sink that said, divine service will be conducted here three times daily. <laughs> in other words, housework done as under the Lord can be service. But I think, you know, unless we have very small children, God would have something for us to do outside of our homes. And not every time we talk to somebody do we share the gospel, but, but we can sow seeds, can't we? I'll tell you one way that I've done it other than this, but especially during COVID and all that, people are so afraid. And so I go out to a restaurant and I've always prayed before I have the meal. And I, I'm sure you do also. Doesn't matter where you are. You just bow your head, say the blessing. And if you're with a friend, you say it out loud with your friend. And so, but what I've done is before I have the blessing, if the server comes, I tell him that we're going to pray and how can I pray for him? So the first time I did that was one of the first times I went out, you know, when they opened up restaurants and you could go to a restaurant, you wear your mask to the table and then you can take it off. And, and the server came over to the table and I told him that we we're getting ready to pray and how could I pray for him? And the server stood there and his eyes filled with tears and he told me how we could pray for him. And then I pray, he was a big African-American guy and then he held out his hands and waited for me to take his hands so I could pray over him. And that's happened to me more than what, I've only had one person, a woman who told me when I asked her if I could pray for, no, she said, I'm fine, I don't need prayer. But everybody else has given me something to pray for, thank me for it. And it's that's just a little thing, okay? Anybody can do that. Just sow your seeds. Have a friend who <clears throat> played tennis, and she noticed other women who played tennis, they didn't go to church and such, so she started a Bible study at the racket club. They came with their little Bibles that they'd never opened up before. The pages were all stuck together, and <clears throat> some of them never had a Bible, and she began to teach the Bible to them right there at the racket club. Another friend who had quadruplets, four children at the same time. And as they got older, every child in the neighborhood came to play in that yard. And they were trampling her bushes, trampling her flowers, and she was shooing them away. And then she said, no, I'm going to have a Bible club for these children. And the parents were so glad to get rid of their children, they let them all come <laughs> to her house. And, and she started a little backyard Bible club for the children in her neighborhood. <clears throat> have another friend, <clears throat> when her children were little, they caught the bus in front of her house, and one day it was raining. And so she was keeping her children and the neighbor children who were going to catch the bus in her house because she was right next to the bus stop. And when she did, she read a verse, and then she prayed over them. And when the bus came, they all went on the bus. The next day it was raining. They all came in her foyer. She read the verse, prayed over them. When the bus came, they went back on the bus. The next day it wasn't raining, but all the little children were in her foyer. They wanted to hear the verse, and they wanted to be prayed over. It doesn't have to be something organized. You don't have to go to seminary. <laughs> you, don't ha you know, ask God. When you're walking with God, ask him what your assignment is. Ask him what you can do for him. Ask him how you can sow those seeds. Ask him how you can share the gospel. Ask him how you can tell people today who are so afraid that they can have peace in their hearts, they can have joy that's not related to circumstances, they can have hope for the future if they put their trust in Jesus, that God has given Jesus because he loves us, he wants us to be saved, 
We put our trust and faith in Jesus. We won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. And then when we go through those hard times and the black velvet seems to wrap us in it, we have his promise that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be with you. Isaiah 43, when you walk through the floods, they won't, the river, they won't, the flood won't overcome. You walk through the fire, you won't be burnt because I will be with you. You have his presence. So Noah walked with God. He built the ark. The New Testament says he was a preacher, stood in the doorway, I can imagine, for seven days, actually, and stood there in the door preaching to the people that must have come to watch this crazy old fool, and nobody responded. Holding the baton out, take it, take it. You need to be saved. Judgment's coming. God will save you. Come into the ark. And nobody accepted that invitation except his family. After seven days, God himself shut the door. And the judgment that everybody said was not coming came, swept them all away. But Noah and his family were saved. So... The baton of the gospel was received in the beginning by Adam and Eve from God face to face. And then it's relayed face to face to Abel and Seth who witnessed, to Enosh who worshipped, to Enoch who walked, and to Noah who worked. And if you choose to grasp that baton and pass it to the next generation. You're just in a wonderful company. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Can I just give you an overview? <clears throat> Adam passed it to Seth, passed it to Enosh, passed it to Kenan, passed it to Mahalalel, passed it to Jared, to Enoch, to Methuselah, to Lamech, to Noah, to Shem, to Eber, to Terah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. I'm going to skip some generations, okay? So otherwise we'll be here all night. <laughs> to Moses, to Joshua, to Deborah, to Gideon, to Samson, to Ruth, to Samuel, to David, to Solomon, to Josiah, to Hezekiah, Elijah, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist was standing beside the Jordan River and he said, look, there goes Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And once again, the gospel was face to face. And the apostle John said, I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him with my own ears. My hands touched him. And Polycarp heard John's testimony that he had received that gospel baton face to face and then John related to Polycarp faith to faith, and Polycarp passed it to Ambrose, and Ambrose to Augustine, and Augustine to Anselm, and then to Wycliffe, and John Huss, and Martin Luther, and John Knox, and Calvin, and Bunyan, and Jonathan Edwards, and Wesley, and Whitfield, and Asbury, and Carey, and Spurgeon, and Moody, and Haldeman, and Sunday, and Mordecai Ham, and Billy Graham, to me, to you, to your children and your grandchildren. Amen. So can I just tell you, don't drop the baton. Don't even bobble it. Can you imagine? Let me just ask you, if everybody was running their race like you are, would the gospel die out in this generation? Now, I know God always has a remnant. 
but I don't want it to shrink on my watch. <laughs> so we can get excited about prophecy. Yes, we can, and I'm right there with you. We can get excited about the revival that seems to be breaking out in Asbury and some of these other colleges, and we can get excited. Amen. We can get excited about Greg Laurie's new movie, The Jesus Revolution, and praise God. But listen to me. Don't leave it up to a movie, and don't leave it up to a revival on a college campus. This is your responsibility and my responsibility to make sure we are gripping the gospel for ourselves, that we've put our faith in Jesus, and we're bearing witness. We speak up. We stand up. Even though we may risk persecution, ostr you know, marginalization, or at this point in America, they don't, I don't think they're going to call us out and kill us, but they just raise their eyebrows or just leave us out of an invitation, and, and we don't want to be marginalized like that. Listen, stand up. Speak out. Bear witness and worship. Praise Jesus. Black velvet or no. And if you don't have black velvet, praise God. But the black velvet is to show off God's glory in your life. And you walk with him. Oh, and you know, when you start walking with him, it becomes the joy of your life. To read your Bible and hear his voice speaking to you through it. To pray and get answers and know that he cares about you. He leans out of heaven to answer your prayers and then to work in such a way. Could it be your family that's saved? Or a loved one, a neighbor to see others saved because of the work that you do? So make sure you're gripping that baton for yourself and then relay it by faith through your witness, your worship, your walk, and your work until one day you step into heaven and then it's face to face. Pray with me, please. <clears throat> and just in this moment, I don't think I can leave this message without making sure that everybody here has gripped the baton. And you do understand what I mean. Is there somebody here who has come, but you've never been to the cross? You've never received Jesus by faith as your Savior. You've been offering, you know, other things to God, but you've just refused for whatever reason to come to Him through that blood sacrifice. And can I tell you what Abel's blood also says, what his death still speaks, that there is no other way. God will not accept you unless you come to Him through faith in Jesus at the cross. So is there somebody here that tonight wants to make sure that you're gripping the gospel for yourself, that you've received Jesus as your Savior. So I'm just going to ask you in the quietness of this moment, we're not going to take time, but just reach up your hand as though you're grasping for the, the baton. Just lift your hand. Anybody here? And then I'm going to pray for you. Praise God in the back. I see the silhouetted hands. <laughs> so 
let me just pray for you for a minute. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you just pray after me, just like Pastor Ray or Pastor Daniel would do. Dear God, tonight, I want to start the race. I want to receive the gospel for myself. So tonight, I come to the cross. I believe Jesus died for me. And I want to tell you that I'm sorry for all the wrong things I've done. Would you please cleanse me with the blood of Jesus? And I believe Jesus rose up from the dead to give me eternal life. And right now I've received the eternal life that he offers. And I know eternal life means knowing you in a personal right relationship as well as heaven when I die. And I open up my heart and I invite Jesus to come live inside of me. I surrender my life to him. From this day forward, I seek to walk with him one step at a time until I walk right into heaven. If that's your prayer, welcome to God's family. And I know there'll be pastors, there are helps here. If you come forward, there'll be things they can give you that help you understand the decision you've made. You can go to my website, angramlots.org, click on the button Jesus. We give you some helps there too. So, so Father, for the rest of us, oh my goodness, you have entrusted us with living in what could only be termed as Cain civilization. We know we're living in a nation that's coming under judgment. So we don't want to get caught up in all the headlines. <coughs> we want to keep our focus on you. Give us opportunities, please, to share the gospel in a meaningful way, to tell other people about Jesus, to name his name, to not be ashamed to name the name of Jesus and tell people that you so love them that you've given them Jesus to save them from the judgment that's coming, that they might have eternal life. Oh, Lord God, please, we're asking that you would use us for your glory. Help us to run our race so that the end, we know that we receive your well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, when I get to heaven, I want to look around. I want to see people there because I ran my race here and I was faithful to share the gospel as you give me opportunity. So we give you praise and we thank you and we ask that you take the message and work it into our hearts that we might reflect on the kind of race we're running. Lord, it's not over yet. Thank you that we're still, still here. We haven't finished our race of life. So there's time now to incorporate these characteristics to make sure that we're witnessing, we're worshiping, we're walking, and we're working until we see you face to face. We pray this, please, in Jesus' name and for his glory.